for what you're teaching us. We pray as we continue to build on this theme that you would just bless us to wrap our minds around this theme and these principles and that you would bless us indeed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Turn to Romans. Romans chapter 5. It's a good chapter or a big chapter? Good? Yeah, I like it. Good. All right. Romans chapter 5. So I'm going to read verses 8, 9, and 10. Romans 5, 8, 9, and 10. God commanded his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. All right. So, we need both of the things that are talked about here. According to the text, you can only answer me from what the text says. I'm limiting your answering possibilities. What are we reconciled by, according to the text? We're reconciled by the death of Jesus. Why did I capitalize that? I don't know. Okay. So we're reconciled by the death of Jesus. What are we saved by, according to the text? By his life. That's right. <clears throat> this is why we as Seventh-day Adventists believe in a two-phased atonement, okay? There are um, varying views, you know, amongst evangelicals. I think we're kind of crazy. You guys don't believe, you know, we believe that the cross and, you know, that we don't believe the cross was good enough. And the Bible doesn't, uh, in, in blatant honesty. Like The Bible communicates that the life of Jesus is equally as important as the death of Jesus, and this is super important for us to not kind of, uh, to not feel bad about this, about having this belief system. So I know I, I haven't been to school in a million years, and I was so wounded from trauma that I wasn't really attentive when I was there. But I know there's this thing about canceling fractions, right? The death that we deserve, I don't even remember, no. uh, this is not math class, it's a chill, because I don't know what I'm talking about in that sense, but I'm just saying that the death that you and I deserve is canceled out by the death of Jesus, okay? So everything that I deserve, Jesus received, okay? That's the first part. But here's the thing. If all we have is the death of Jesus, you know, based on what our evangelical brethren believe, if all we had was the death of Jesus, is that good news, first of all, that we had the death of Jesus? Certainly, right? The debt that I owe has been paid because the wages of sin is death. So it's great that I'm out of debt. How many people have, have hit that out of debt mark in life? Well, I mean, some of you are young and never even accrued debt. But yeah, I paid my car off this summer. It's an amazing, liberating feeling. 13 months early, debt-free, glory, hallelujah. Um, but the problem is I now need to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed, or I'm going to go back into debt. So if all I had was the death of Jesus, I would have no hope of eternal life. Do you see that? Because my previous debt would be canceled, but there would be nothing to protect me from going back into debt. So what I now need is a life that I have not lived, which Jesus lives on our behalf. He lived the life that I have not lived, and he died the death that I deserve. So we need the life and the death of Jesus. Yeah? And we'll go into this a little bit more, actually, in uh, our Bible study classes on the gospel. But um, So Jesus' death cancels out our debt. That's the work of the Lamb, right? And Jesus gives His life. Uh, his life is what gives us our fitness for heaven. And that's the work of the priest, okay? So we see both of those in this narrative. So Romans 5 is great for that, right? To help us understand why we have this belief system that we do. And the Day of Atonement and the Investigative Judgment fits perfectly into this worldview. And the work that's happening in the sanctuary in heaven fits perfectly into this worldview. Yes? Yeah. So the debt that I, right, because the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God, the way it reads in the original language. So we're in trouble like in a lot of trouble. So the fact that someone canceled that debt is great, but I continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God. So I need someone to live a life that doesn't fall short of the glory of God, that is only solely for the glory of God. And then I need access to that life. 
I don't just need somebody to live it. I need somebody to make that a reality in my life. Does that make sense? And that's what we talked about over here, right? Imparted righteousness and sanctification. So again, you don't have to live in a ditch. You can maintain both principles, the grace and mercy of God and the expectations of a righteous life. You receive both in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to both, okay? So, we talked about this already. If all I had was the death of Jesus, I'd have no hope of eternal life. My past debt would be cleared with no hope of living a victorious life going forward. Hence why Jesus lived that life too, okay? And this is exactly why we need that two-phase atonement. So God does desire us to have lives that are free from sin. He does intend for us to overcome. If he didn't, why did Jesus come to suffer, overcome, die, and rise again? It doesn't make sense, right? Was he just showing off? Hey, I can do something that you can't do. Or did he do it not only as our example, which our conservative brethren will say, Jesus lived a righteous life as our example. Well, that's true, but he didn't just give an example. His example is available to me through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and righteousness by faith, right? Because it still feels very shame-based that, you know, look and observe what Jesus did and you better get there. That's not what we're saying. What Jesus did is also available to me, okay? And we'll see that actually in one of our quotes at the end, okay? So he's provided the means necessary for us to overcome by sending Jesus to live a perfect life that we have not lived and empowering us to live Christ's life through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're offered, okay? So how does that happen? Someone grab 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he under he standeth, take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Okay. That word literally means to endure it at the end, uh, at the end of the verses. So how do we get access to this? Well, one of the ways that we get access to it is by responding to the Holy Spirit when convicted. Okay, so the Apostle Paul here says that um, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as is common to man. You're not a loser, right? Other people struggle with the same things, which, by the way, everybody needs to hear, right? Because one of the temptations we are tempted to believe is that it's you. No one understands what you're going through. You're a dirty mess. But when you recognize that other people struggle in the same way, there's a sense of empowerment that comes from that and a sense of camaraderie and community that bonds, right? There's a reason why recovery groups can succeed because you're finding out that you're not isolated. Other people struggle in the same ways, which actually kind of helps you to... Um, there's a word I'm trying to humanify there's a word i'm trying to think of that isn't coming to my brain but that's not really i don't even think that is a word but if it is it's not what i mean anyway the point is it it helps to restore the dignity of an individual to realize they're not the only person who struggles with this humanize yes uh yeah sure so <laughs> something like that and so it's helpful that doesn't mean that everybody needs to hang out in that in that ditch together forever but the point is it helps you to recognize I'm not alone in this struggle, for one. And two, um, there's community that can help get you out, right? You can talk through this and work through this together. So Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. So every sing what Paul's saying here is that literally... <laughs> um, Paul's literally saying here that every time we are tempted to sin, there's a way out. That's what he's saying. But with the temptation, we'll also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. And this will change your whole worldview. Because now what you can do after you sin is you can do an autopsy. Not literally, if you hurt somebody. Um, but you can, you can do an autopsy and ask yourself some questions. How did I get into that situation, and where was the way of escape that God made for me in that scenario? This is huge, because as you start to realize it going backwards, you're going to be more inclined to recognize it in the moment when it happens in the future. And I can tell you with absolute assurance that every time since my conversion, 
that was tempted to fall in certain areas and did fall. I walked past this fork in the road before I fell. That I saw that God said, you don't have to do this. You can do something else instead. All of us have had that, right? All of us have had that scenario where there's a thought in your mind that says, you know, you don't really have to open that computer. You can do something else. You don't have to say those things that are in your mind right now about what they just said to you. Like those thoughts come, but many times we just plow right through the intersection, right? We skip the stop sign, we plow right through the intersection and T-bone sin, right? And it causes a lot of issues. But God's made a way. The question is, will we respond to the prompting of His Spirit when we're tempted? Because that's our ticket out. Does that make sense? So the Spirit is doing a work for us in that moment to say, hey, you don't have to do this. And if you came to recognize, um, I'll give you a perfect example of what is really happening in 1 Corinthians 10. In John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well. I talk about her a lot. Um, The woman at the well in John chapter 4, she's at this well at what time of day? Noon. Now, is it hot at noon in the Middle East? Kind of, right? Yeah, it's blazing hot. No one in their right mind is going to be at that well at that time of day. And that's why she's there. Her water pot is her means of escape from the problems of her life. Right? She's getting there when the other women of the city aren't there. She's trying to avoid people because they know her story. And it's not a pretty one. She's been married five times. And the guy she's shacking up with now is not her husband. Doesn't look good. Right? The guy doesn't have the courage to marry her. Right? In her culture... Uh, it's pretty rough. Women didn't have a lot of rights. They couldn't get divorces. So if she's been divorced five times, that means that she's been kicked out five times. She's been rejected five times. And the guy she's currently living with is not committed to her. He's not married to her. This is difficult, right? She's feeling the weight of that. And it's in that context, there's an interesting statement in John chapter 4 and verse 4, where it says that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Well, wait a minute. What first century Jew needs to go through Samaria? I'm just going to keep staring at you awkwardly until you answer my question. None. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, nobody, right? No first century Jew needs to go through Samaria. But Jesus does. Why? To offer her a way of escape. What Jesus is literally telling this woman is that what I have to offer you is vastly better than what you're coming here for. And will you take it? And that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 10. When the Spirit of God comes and speaks to you and convicts you before you sin that this is not a good thing to do, that is not a voice of condemnation. It's an invitation to something better. And if we understood that, we wouldn't plow through the intersection. We'd realize something better or not. Because Jesus also tells her, what I have to offer you is vastly better than what you're coming here for. And besides, this water is just going to make you thirst again anyway. And the things that we run to and that the Spirit tries to spare us from, do those things lead us to thirst again? No. Yes. Uh, I mean, sorry. Yes, right? Yeah, 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 we thirst again. They don't fill us, right? It it numbs the pain for a bit and the pain comes back. That's exactly right, my sister, right? It's a broken sister and they can't hold water. And so this, Jesus is offering us something better in those moments of conviction. He's not condemning you for having tempting thoughts. Jesus had tempting thoughts. Was he condemned? No. Jesus took the way of escape that was provided him every time. That's the difference. And what we can be praying for is that Jesus would give us an awareness of and an appreciation of that voice of escape or that means of escape that he's made for us. That can be part of the believer's experience. You can be praying, Lord, help me to recognize and appreciate the ways of escape that you bring into my life. It'll change everything. So do an autopsy. Think through the things that have happened in your recent history where you've made made decisions you wish you hadn't made. And ask yourself, was there a way of escape that God presented me before I did that? And I guarantee you the answer is yes. You may not remember it after the fact, but if you ask God for insight and wisdom, I bet you he'll show you. There's always a way of escape. That's what Paul's saying. There's never a time in which you have to sin. There's always a way of escape. Now, is it easy? I'd be lying to you if I said it was. But as you learn to respond to the promptings of the Spirit and to hear the voice of the Spirit, and you don't die when you don't lunge for that thing to fill your flesh, 
it's easier to respond to the Spirit the next time. And when you respond and don't go forward in the thing that your flesh longs to do, and you don't die, it gets easier the next time. Does that make sense? To assume that anything about the Christian experience is going to be easy is a fallacy. It's usually through the roads of difficulty that the things that are worth having are achieved. So if you're just trying to avoid difficulty, you're losing blessings. Difficulty is not flying in the face of blessings, right? Many times difficulty is the road to blessings. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be difficult either, but the point is if we keep avoiding things that are difficult, we're actually avoiding blessings um, because we live in a world that's difficult. The devil and all the fallen angels and the world itself and my flesh are all raging against the right impulses that God has put in my heart. It's going to be difficult to say no to those. That voice is much louder, especially as I'm coming out of the world. It's going to be a process, but it's worth it, right? And what He has to offer us is better than what we're running to. And when we drink from His well, we're not going to thirst again. We'll be fully and completely satisfied. Okay, so this is an example of that. There's another one in Philippians 2.13. Someone wants to read that one. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 2.13. Philippians. Read 12 and 13. In fact, I can't. Oh, no, that's fine. When people put just 12, I'm offended. They put just 13, I'm okay with that. 12 and 13, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Verse 12 can, can kill a brother. Yeah? If someone tells you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, There's going to be a lot of fear and trembling, but I don't know about the salvation. But Paul doesn't stop there, right? So make sure you don't quote that verse to people without reading verse 13, where he says, For it is God who works in you to do what? To will and to do. You don't even have the ability to create the desire to do the right thing. Even that is borrowed from God. So God is the one that can place the desire in your heart to change. And he's also the one that can empower you to change, right? And it's in following the prompting of the Spirit that both of these are going to happen, yeah? So this is kind of our, our roadmap of sorts, part of the roadmap. Read the book Steps of Christ. That's the, the, the best roadmap I've seen as far as the practical steps of how to be a Christian, how to grow in Christ, and so forth. It's just, she lays everything out so nicely. But in drawing from a lot of biblical themes, it's not just her commentary. So... When we are tempted, we're to ask for Jesus' spirit of surrender to the will of God, who then enables our will to carry out God's will, right? You don't even have a surrender that's good enough. We need Jesus' spirit of surrender because our, our surrender many times is, is, is reservedly surrendered, right? Ah, I mean, I guess, or kind of, meh, right? But Jesus was wholeheartedly and fully surrendered to God. And we talked about surrender, right, in our first week of classes, that the real issue of surrender is not what you give up, but that you give up, that you acknowledge your powerlessness, your inability to deal with the situation. And Jesus, I need your spirit of surrender in this moment. And and you'll do it, okay? So back to the agriculture theme in Christ's Object Lessons, now on page 66.1. She says, the plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. Adriana, asking your question earlier, right? This is, this is part of that, right? So the plant grows by receiving that which God has provided to sustain its life. So putting yourself in environments and situations where it will be conducive for growth. One of the principles behind the reforms that we were given as Adventists in health reform and dress reform and entertainment reform and so forth Part of the reason for that is to get the weeds out of the soil so that we can grow, to remove the things that would hinder our growth so that growth will be more likely, right, and more fruitful. So this this is what happens. So she says, it sends down its roots into the earth. It drinks in the sunshine, the dew, and the rain. It receives the life-giving properties from the air. So the Christian is to grow by cooperating with the divine agencies, 
Feeling our helplessness, we are to improve all the opportunities granted us to gain a fuller experience. That's what we talked about before the break, right? Don't chop off the blessings that God wants to give you and the things that He's brought you to, right? So go forward fully in the things that He's brought you to because there's a blessing in them, right? And we will find our growth from tapping into these things that He has brought to sustain our life, yeah? That's part of how this process is supposed to work. So if we pull ourselves out of the soil, if we avoid those things that were meant for our growth, there's an imbalance. There's a nutritional deficiency, as John was talking about, right? There there can be an imbalance. So fully immerse yourself in the things that God has provided for your growth. And that may mean fully immersing yourself in some things that are uncomfortable, right? I don't know about you, but Jesus doesn't generally lead me into areas that are only comfortable. Most of the places He put me are super uncomfortable. But I find so many blessings in it on the other end. Not in the middle, obviously. It's, it's horrifying sometimes. But on the other end, who you become through that process is for your benefit, right? So she says, as the plant takes root in the soil, so we're to take deep root where? In Christ. And as the plant receives the sunshine, the dew, and the rain, we are to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit. The work is to be done, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay? She continues, if we keep our minds stayed upon Christ, he will come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. As the son of righteousness, he will arise upon us with healing in his wings. We shall grow as the lily. We shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. By constantly relying upon Christ as our personal savior, we shall grow up into him in all things who is our head. Stay in the soil. How fast you grow is none of your business. Immerse yourself in the soil, and that soil is the things that God is bringing into your life for your growth. His Word, prayer, the Holy Spirit, the sharing of your faith, Christian community, the beauty of the outdoors that teaches us things about the gospel, all of it, right? All those things that God has provided for our enrichment and growth, if we stay in the soil, we will grow. It's guaranteed. There will be seasons where it's silent and imperceptible, but you will grow, and it's guaranteed, okay? So the Holy Spirit allows us to receive everything that Christ achieved and overcame on our behalf. We can cry out in any moment of need to receive from God what Jesus has already made available. Jesus continually yielded to the will of His Father. He continually abided in God, and we can receive that spirit of surrender. That's what we're asking for, right? God's not asking you to try harder. He's asking you to receive Jesus' perfect surrender, right? And it works. So, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Someone grab that. We're going to have some rapid-fire verses here. Romans 8 and verse 11, so we need you to be nimble. But these will all be in Romans 8, a good chunk of them at least. Romans 8 and verse 11. Isn't that amazing? Literally, the very spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can raise you from spiritual death and the things that are killing you in your experience. Yeah? Addictions, faulty mindsets, whatever they may be. That very same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can raise you too. Okay? That's the promise we're given in Romans 8, 11. How about Romans chapter 8 and verse 32? Who got that one? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Just think with me. If God was willing to give all of heaven in one gift, why wouldn't He give you what you're going to need to succeed in your Christian experience? That's what Paul's saying. Because remember, Romans 8 is the answer to the questions of Romans 7. Romans 7, the issue is, what God asks of me, I get. But how to do it, I don't know. And he says, O wretched man that I am, the very things that I wish I would do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I continually do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is Romans 8. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It literally accounts for every deficiency in the human experience. So if God is going to give all of heaven in one gift by giving Jesus Christ, do you really think God's not going to give you what you need to succeed as a Christian? That's exactly right. But how many Christians live in that mind space? God's asking a whole bunch. 
And we, we treat God in the same way that Jesus treated the Pharisees. You heap large weight upon men's shoulders, but you don't lift one finger to help them. That's not the way God operates. God is willing to give you what you need. Are you even asking? Did you even know that He's willing, and are you asking? That's the question. Okay? Romans 8, 26. Who's got that one? In our infirmities, in the New King James, it says weaknesses. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Anyone in this room got some weaknesses? Anybody? Yeah. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit also helps with that. He helps in our weaknesses. Even if you don't know how to pray, He helps in that too. Literally, anything that you are incapable of doing is accounted for in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's all there, guys. Literally, everything required for you to get into heaven is already available to you. Any and everything. The life you haven't lived, the death that you deserve, power from on high, the ability to think clearly in the midst of temptation, the way to to actually have a desire to change, knowing how to pray. It's all there. It's all built in. God literally is giving you an all-expense-paid trip to heaven. And I remember when I went through the Arise program, Nathan Renner, he'll teach for us in uh, January on how we got the Bible and how to study the Bible. His class is fire. I can't wait. Um, it's one of my favorite classes. But Nathan, he did the Ministry of the Holy Spirit class, which we'll have in our Bible study, you know, kind of fundamental beliefs classes in a couple of weeks. As he went through the Ministry of the Holy Spirit, I loved Jesus when I went to Arise. Like I was, I love Jesus. I'm committing my life to him. But I remember thinking to myself, like, he got so much better when I heard that study. I literally thought to myself, like, well, what's left for me to do? Like, literally, he has accounted for everything that's needed for us to end up in heaven. Who would say no to that? My love for Jesus went through the roof, even though I already loved him a whole bunch, when I came to understand all of what he was willing to do for me to see me in the kingdom. Notice, God is not saying, I don't have standards, just walk in the front door. He's saying, yes, I have standards, but I literally will give you whatever it takes to succeed in those standards, and the door's open. Do you see that? And again, this is super important to have a balanced view of how this process works. God doesn't downplay His standards. He makes a way to achieve the standards in Jesus. Okay? So every deficiency in our experience has been accounted for in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The question is, what are we going to do with the pleadings of God through His Spirit? That's the real question. So, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, this is kind of the the last part of the appeal to the Laodicean church. He's already had some straight talk with them. Then we get to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Talk about this quite a bit this year, too. Okay. So, how is Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts? What do you think? Through His Spirit. Spirit. There's not a literal Judean rabbi walking the earth, going up and tapping on people's chests, right? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God is knocking on the door of every heart, right? Seeking to get our attention seeking to get our response, right? So this fork in the road moment, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13, that's Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, offering you something better. Yeah? All right. So we are gods at every step of our growth according to the imputed and imparted righteousness of Christ. And we can have assurance that we are in God and heaven bound when we remain in Christ. There's two texts that say this. They're super brief ones, so you can just write the references down. 1 John 3, 24, 1 John 4, 13. Basically, he says twice, this is how we know that we know Him, by His Spirit whom He has given us. One of the ways that you can know that God loves you and desires to be with you and hasn't cast you off is what the Spirit is doing in your life. 
That includes when you don't know God and you're not following God, but you're convicted anyway. Right? That's evidence that he's doing something to start a conversation. Now, you're not his yet, but he's wanting you to be. Right? And as a Christian, when you're convicted of wrong, when you're convicted to make changes, when you're, you're convicted that you're believing things about yourself that aren't true, that God is not against you, he's for you, that he loves you, that he accepts you, that he believes in you, right? This is how we can know that we know him because of the work that the Spirit is doing in our lives. Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and we don't know where it came from or where it's going, but we know, right, that something's happening based upon what we see. This is, and he's, and he's basically equating the work of the Spirit to this in John chapter 3, that we may not know where the wind began and where the wind is going, but we do know that something's happening. And that's evidence that the Spirit is at work in our life. Yeah? So even in those seasons of uncertainty, when we sense the Spirit of God doing something in our life, that, that's evidence that God hasn't given up on you. God's not done with you, right? Keep digging, keep searching, and He'll give you your answers. All right, listen to this. Christ Object Lessons, page 311. This robe, what robe do you think she's talking about? The righteousness of Christ, right? This robe, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity write out what type of a character? A perfect character. And this character he offers to do what? To impart to us. Okay? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Everything that we of ourselves can do is defiled by sin. Whoa. How much of what we do is defiled by sin? Everything. Even the good stuff. But the Son of God was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. And sin is defined to be the transgression of the law. But Christ was obedient to every requirement of the law. He said of himself, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. When on earth, he said to his disciples, I have kept my father's commandments. And by Jesus' perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Amen? So by Jesus' righteous life, he has made available to us a righteous life. That's what we're promised. Okay? She says, when we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The merge is willed in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. Similar themes to Desire of Ages 668 that we talked about before. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. And then what happens? It's underlined. We live his life. As we submit ourselves to Jesus, we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, okay? Us being empowered to live His life is what it looks like to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Then, as the Lord looks upon us, He sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but His own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah, okay? Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, okay? Well, the thing is, we've seen a whole lot about God's goodness in this presentation, haven't we? This understanding of what God is doing for us in the first angel's message, this is what leads us to repent. Matthew, as far as your question earlier, when people truly know God, they're not going to not repent, right? Like not repenting isn't an option in their mind. I want to do whatever it takes to be on the right side of things and to keep walking where Jesus is leading, right? And it's encountering the goodness of God that makes it easier to own our mistakes because we know that we're not going to be shamed or cast away, right? He who comes unto me, Jesus says in John 6, 37, I think, I will in no wise cast out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember this verse from Lillian Torres. Uh, she was talking about this, how that people are, pe- are preaching repentance and um, uh, way too much in the churches instead of preaching the goodness which leads to repentance, yeah. Because repentance shouldn't be forced upon people, right? Like, it should be preparing people to receive Jesus, right? Repentance isn't really a turning from sin as much as it's a turning to Jesus. Because the, the power's in sin when you say we're turning from sin. What we're really looking to is to turn to the actual power source. And in turning to Jesus, by default, you're turning away from sin, 
right? The greater emphasis should be on what you're turning to, not what you're turning from, right? Our eyes should be on Jesus, not upon what we're leaving. And William Miller had this experience, right? William Miller was fighting God. He was convicted that God was calling him to do a gospel work. First of all, he says that in Jesus, I found a friend, right? It changed his life, but he was really, really tempted to just not do what he was called to do. He was studying things and had understanding of them, but he was really wary of sharing it with somebody else. And because of that, it was difficult. So he basically said, no, I'm not going to do it. And he eventually made a rash vow to God that if somebody comes and asks me to preach, I'll do it. And his nephew shows up and knocks on the door from many miles away, says, hey, they're asking for someone to preach at our church, and so we want you to come and do it. And he storms out of the house, doesn't even greet the kid at this stage, storms out of the house and goes and dukes it out with Jesus in the orchard. Uh, It wasn't a real boxing match. It was just a a wrestling match of his heart. And he's like, all right, I submit. And he went. Um, When he saw the goodness of God and came face to face, he was trying to disprove. He had very different views. God got a hold of him. Happened to E.J. Wagner, too, if you've ever heard his conversion story. E.J. Wagner was at a rainy camp meeting. Um, so there's a very interesting story. At one point, I'm going to have you guys watch a sermon. There's a sermon that Ty Gibson preached called One Move. If I don't have you watch it here, like in class at some point in time, I'm going to give it to you as a homework assignment. It's totally worth it. You'll love it. Um, there's a sermon he preached called One Move. He shared it at annual council around this time many years ago, 2012, 2011 maybe. And he basically was making the point that that the Advent movement has one move they need to make to put the devil in checkmate. And it's embracing this message of Christ, our righteousness. And I think he's totally right. And so, anyways, a beautiful message. But he, there's a trajectory that led to, to E.J. Wagner's conversion. Ellen White's husband, James, was becoming increasingly convicted of the fact that they needed to bring the gospel before our people and our ministers, and that they need to travel less and write more, because they were killing themselves with workaholism. James certainly knew a thing or two about that. Both of them were traveling too much. So James was telling Ellen White, we need to slow down, we need to write more, and people who were with James in the closing seasons of his life, the remaining months, he was preaching the love of Jesus more passionately and more prominently than he ever had before and had a deep urgency in his heart that this has to happen. We need to bring this message before our people. Well, James White died in August of 1881, and Ellen White and him had many conversations about the need to bring this message more prominently before the people. James dies, and God speaks to Ellen White at his deathbed and tells him, though one laborer has passed to his rest, I am raising up other laborers to pick up this work. That was the promise that God gave her. I forget exactly the timeline, but I'm pretty sure it's not that long after this. Ellen White is preaching at a camp meeting. If it's a year or so, I forget the timeline. She's preaching at a camp meeting, and E.J. Wagner was present. It was raining cats and dogs outside. And E.J. Wagner was deeply convicted. He cannot remember what she said, what text she was using. But what he remembered was that he came face to face with an understanding that Jesus died for me, me individually, and that I must commit my life to sharing this truth with others. And God raises up E.J. Wagner, and without any collusion between him and Jones, he raises up Jones with the same convictions. And these guys wouldn't talk back and forth about what they were going to preach on. And it would happen where the two of them would be at, they would attend a local church because they both worked for um, signs of the times, I think. And so they both worked in the same offices, but they would travel and preach. So Wagner would preach at a church one week, and then he would be gone the next week, and and Jones was gone the the week that Wagner preached. And so he would ask people, what did Jones preach this weekend? He says, the same thing you preached the week before. Like, stuff like this would keep happening, and they could just go up and give presentations back and forth without any preparation. There was a moment during the 1888 General Conference where people were kind of arguing with them uh, in some of their views. And so each one, one by one, would just take a text, and they would only read the text. Then the next guy would only read a text, and the next guy would only read a text, and giving solid, clear, linear arguments in favor of what they were saying that was clearly from the Bible. 
God inspired these men with a very important and precious message. And that was a trajectory. And this story of encountering the loveliness of Jesus and the reasonableness of God and how He operates is what changed His life and used Him as a messenger to change many lives from that point forward. Right? It happened to William Miller. It happened to Wagner. It happened to James White. God has been trying to awaken us to this goodness of God, which will bring the movement, I believe, to repentance and to recognize we must embrace this message and take it forward. Okay, it's part of our history and our story. Listen to what Ellen White says. He who is trying to reach heaven by his own works and keeping the law is attempting a what? An impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience. That's true. But his work should not be of himself. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. If a man could save himself by his own works, he might have something in himself in which to rejoice. But he can't, so don't. (laughs) She continues. The effort that man makes in his own strength to obtain salvation is represented by the offering of Cain. It's Christless. All that man can do without Christ is polluted with selfishness and sin. But that which is wrought through faith is acceptable to God. When we seek to gain heaven through the merits of Christ, the soul makes progress. How many of us need to make progress in our heavenward journey? All of us. Well, when you're striving to receive the merits of Christ, you'll make progress. Okay? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we may go on from strength, from victory to victory. For through Christ, the grace of God has worked out what type of a salvation? Our complete salvation. The death that we deserve, the life that we have not lived. Yeah? Through Christ, we receive the whole package. Everything that's needed to get you in the kingdom has already been achieved by Jesus. And He's asking you to receive it. That's the point of this beautiful message. Is there a role that we play? Certainly. You think dying's easy? Of course not. But even He can give you the will and the power to do of His good pleasure. Yeah? So Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So walking according to the Spirit is confessing our sin and walking in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit. So of course this would deliver us from any form of condemnation. And since we're receiving Christ's Spirit of surrender, we're doing it in Christ. This is what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 8. So, the end time ramifications, we already kind of talked about this, this idea of we know that this is what we need to look like at the end of time, but we don't look like that right now, to be saved at the end of time specifically. And we think to ourselves, well, I don't look like that right now, so am I saved now? Some of us can wrestle with this. It's because we don't understand this principle that God views us as perfect at every stage of development, right? So we've already kind of dealt with that. So I think we're almost done. I think there's just a couple slides here. So Romans 8, 31 to 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you can be. Right? We can choose to believe the things about us that the devil believes instead of the things that God believes. But what he's saying is, after his exhaustive discourse on Romans 8 of all of what God is doing to see humanity saved, he's making it clear God's for you guys. He's not against you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with Jesus also freely give us all things? If God is willing to give up Jesus, why would he hold anything back to ensure that you could end up in heaven? The very obedience He requires is provided. The very wisdom you need to make good decisions is provided. The very moral compass you need to know right and wrong through the conviction of the Holy Spirit is provided. The very death that you deserve to die has been provided. The very life you need to live has been provided. The very obedience that heaven requires is provided. It's all there, guys. Every bit of it. Nothing was spared on your expense. He will give you whatever you need to succeed in the Christian experience. That's the promise. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
He's working for us even now, he says. Okay? Then in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the point. Your decisions may separate you from the presence of God, but never from the love of God. And even that decision that you make, he's honoring your decision, right? As far as the separation, he doesn't choose that, doesn't want that. He honors your choice. So you have a lamb and a priest at your service, but he's left the choice with you. That's the point, guys. This is part of the first angel's message, preparing people to stand in the day of God, not just telling them, here's the expectations, start the clock, figure it out. There's a, there's a path to success. We had to let people know that. Yes, sir. I learned that um, when we, um, when man sinned in the beginning, uh, there was created peace between man and Satan. But God put enmity between Satan and us, and He continues to do that. But when we separate ourselves from from God, then um, there becomes peace again between man and Satan. And there's enmity in our hearts towards God. He actually says, <laughs> says that in Romans 8. Uh, you, can, you can look at it here. Romans 8, um, verse 7. For the carnal mind, so one that is not filled with the Holy Spirit, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's a hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh can't please God. Right? It, it's, it's a transaction of the Holy Spirit that enables us to find that form of resistance or hatred towards the things of Satan and a love for the things of God. By default, our hatred is towards God. And this is why I think Paul uses the language of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. It's not that God needs to be reconciled to us, it's that we need to be reconciled to God. God's not against you, we're against Him by default. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what if the very God that you're afraid of disappointing the most believes the best things about you and is doing whatever it takes for you to be saved? And he's just waiting for you to respond. Well, it is true. Then that means the investigative judgment is good news. And that we have a reason to exist as a church prophetically. We have a job that we can be doing right now by telling this to the world. Yes, your sin matters, but you have a Savior. You can be free from sin by God's grace. Jesus can enable you to overcome. And a judgment is happening right now where all of this matters. Right? This This is kind of the point. God sees things in you that you don't even see in you. When I used to work for a media ministry, I, I did a devotional on this idea of, of God, God's belief in us. It's very interesting that Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, William Miller, and Ellen White, every one of those had unhealthy views of God's view of them. But when they came to believe the things about them that God believed the world became a different place. The world was turned upside down, right? These are many of the key figures of the Protestant Reformation and the Advent movement. When their view of God came into harmony with God's view of them, the world became a different place. And I think this is such an important point because it isn't just a matter of God believing in you. The enemy believes in you. And he knows what you're capable of if you believe the things about you that God believes, which is why he fills our hearts and minds with lies and why Revelation 12 refers to him as the accuser of the brethren. He sees the potential in us. You know what that means? That the only person in the great controversy between Christ and Satan who doesn't believe in you is you. It's you. God clearly believes in you. You see that in the life of Jesus. The enemy clearly believes in you. That's why he's harassing you and trying to pull you out of the soil. He can't pull you out of the soil, but he can convince you to pull yourself out of the soil. And this is good news. Jesus would not having you live at the, he would not have you living at this stage in earth's history unless he believed that he could sustain you. 
Some of us are so freaked out. I'm not good enough. I'm not going to be able to hang. I'm not going to be able to toe the line whenever it matters the most and the crisis comes. You think Jesus didn't account for that? The very fact that you are alive at this stage in earth's history is evidence that God believes in your ability to stand and to succeed. You should take great consolation in that. But will you take hold of his belief in you and in response to the faith of Jesus, exercise your faith in Jesus? That's the question. Yeah? All right, has this made sense? Okay, this I believe is what it means in the first angel's message um, that the hour of his judgment has come it, to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. I think this is what's being alluded to here. Uh, and again, I, I know very little. This is just my, my feeble efforts to try to communicate into this space. But I think there certainly is room for growth uh, in the way that we're communicating the first angel's message. If all we're telling people is fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, people are not going to be ready for the second coming. They're not. But if we preach the everlasting gospel, we teach them the difference between abject fear and the fear of God, and then we communicate what it means to live a life that honors God in the midst of the judgment through the power and strength that Christ is willing to provide, that changes everything, doesn't it? Who would say no to that? One of the main reasons why people are rejecting God is because they think He's unreasonable. I think part of the purpose of the first, second, and third angel's messages is to communicate the reasonableness of God. All right, well, let's pray. God, thank you again for blessing us, for enlightening us, for opening our eyes to the beauty of the three angels' messages. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us in the break, cement these truths in our minds. May this not just be something that in a moment we say, whoa, that was cool. Lord, I pray that this would change the way that we do life from this point forward. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.